Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Mad Tales. I'm James Nolan. It is Sunday, August 23rd, and I am recording this in Studio X during a strangely and extremely not super hot and humid August in Virginia. I have a couple of cool updates to give you before we continue on with the rabbit, the jaguar, and the snake. Believe it or not, we are only eight episodes away from its stunning conclusion, by the way. First up, the logo for the rebrand is in, and it looks pretty amazing. Thank you to Don Warren for designing it for me. I can't show it to you yet, but I will be unveiling it and all of the other rebrand stuff over the course of the fall. The new release schedule is also tentatively set. I have five awesome pieces of content coming to you in the next couple of months, including Set It All on Fire, my first studio album in five years, Blood and Gold, the sequel to The Rabbit, the Jaguar, and the Snake. That's in book form and Kindle form. The Rabbit, the Jaguar, and the Snake audiobook, which you've been listening to now, of course, on this podcast, but I'm going to add some super cool content that will only be available in the audiobook version. Season one of the new rebrand, insert name here of the new studio, podcast. And finally, the Lilith short film, which leads me to my next point of business, reviews. One of the most important aspects of marketing all of my creative work is garnering reviews for the work. If you have the time and the inclination and you want to help out, which I would really appreciate, go to whatever platform on which you listen to Mad Tales and click on the stars, leave a written review, whatever it is you feel like doing. And if you've read any of my books, go to Amazon or Goodreads and do the same. The magic number for reviews is 100, which is a lot. But it isn't impossible. Also, if you really like the podcast or if you've read my books or listened to my music or audiobooks, give them a shout out to someone you think might like it or them too. To help you out with this, I've created some links that you can copy and paste into a social media post, and I've even created a little logo with a link on it. So post it, send it, spread the good word. So that's all I have. Now it's on to this week's episode of The Rabbit, the Jaguar, and the Snake. The Snake. Kawadal wanted to push through the night, but Zulok forced him to rest. You're injured, he said. You can't just ignore it. Sleep won't make me better. Kabata's crone will. Not if you never make it to her. You need rest and food. I'm fine. I need rest and food. A good leader keeps his men healthy, yes? Yes, but Kabata, if he's really alive, he has an army. I know, General. We can fight back. I know, General. In the end, Kawadal relented. Kian offered to fish the river, and Sela started a fire. They ate what the boy caught, then bedded down. Kuatl awoke with the sun. He hated to admit it, but the Anton was right. Though his body ached and his leg throbbed, he felt much better for the rest. The children were already awake, itching to go, but Zulak snored as if it was in the middle of the night, his mouth wide open. Sela whispered to Kian, giggling, but Kian frowned and shook his head. Fine, she said, I'll do it. She crept over to the warrior, 
pausing once when he snorted and smacked his lips. Then she crouched down next to his head and picked up a little twig. She held it over his open mouth, waiting until he inhaled and dropped it in. Zulak startled awake, coughing. He spat the twig out into his hand, then stared at the girl, who was laughing behind her hand. Did you drop a twig into my mouth? he asked. She squealed and ran back to her brother. They led the warriors farther downstream than they'd ever been. The river roared along beside them as they walked. Kowadl felt it like a presence, and no matter how hard he tried to ignore the noise, he couldn't. When he was a child, if someone had commented on the sound, he would have said, What sound? Now it tickled his nerves. Just before the sun reached its peak, Sela turned away from the river and deeper into the jungle. Zulak, who'd taken up the rear to keep watch, caught up with the general when they turned. I've never been this far west, he said. Neither have I. I didn't know we had any villages this far out. We don't. Those children, they're not Tlek. Kowadl nodded, thinking. I've never met Kabata, he said. His tribe didn't fight in the mutiny, for your side or mine. But Sikakeyu left him alone. Never punished him. Didn't make him pay the blood debt. I always got the sense that the Skatet was afraid of him. That symbol on their heads, Zulak said. The snake that eats the sun? I've never seen it. We can hear you, Kian said. Kowadl and Zulak shared a guilty glance, and Kowadl elbowed him. Apologize to them. Zulak swallowed his pride. We're sorry, Kian. We're just curious. Your names, we've never heard them before. Where do they come from? What do they mean? Sela means beautiful flower, the boy said, punching Sela in the arm and laughing. She hit him back and told him to shut up. And what does Kian mean? Kowadl asked. Kian glared at the girl. Don't say it. She smirked at him. It means gentle and handsome. He will have many wives. Sela! Kian cried. She ran off, laughing again, before he could hit her. They passed through old villages, the remains of the adobe huts and old steam baths almost indistinguishable from the underbrush. Kowadl tried to remember which village was which, but he couldn't. It had been too long. The path the children took fascinated him, too. He fancied himself a fair tracker, but they seemed to follow a trail visible only to them. Every now and then, they paused to whisper to each other, using a strange language he'd never heard before. Guttural at times, it was smoother than his own, more musical. His leg hurt with every step, and his limp became more and more pronounced. Zulak knew he was too proud to admit he needed help, so when they came across a thicket of bamboo, he hacked away at the sturdiest shoot for the general to use as a staff. It was tall and thick, and it could be used as a weapon in a pinch. Kowadl was grateful, but even with its help, the wound took its toll. The sun beat down through the canopy, and the day grew hot. He needed a break. They came into a clearing, and he said, Sela, Kian, we must stop. They did, frowning. He pointed at the drooping tumor. I have to sit and rest, please, only a few minutes. Kian looked at the girl, his head shaking a little bit. This is a bad place, she said. Zulak looked around, skeptical. It's a clearing. Look, there's even a few old logs to sit on. No, Kian said. Those aren't logs. That's a witch house. An old one. An evil one from the ancient cities. Not much of a house anymore, is it? Kuwata limped around the perimeter. The boy was right. Those weren't logs. They were made of some strange metal he'd never seen before. There were four of them, squared off at each corner, all of them in various states of decay. It looked like an outline. Now that he looked closer, they were charred and twisted in places. The air seemed to grow heavy. No birds flitted overhead. No insects buzzed in the brush. Sayla looked around her as if she'd heard something. 
Stela, it's okay, Kian told her. Kuwadl lowered himself to the ground with a grunt, letting his legs stick out in front of him. Zulak joined him, chuckling. Don't worry, children, he said. We're fierce warriors. If any bad witch tries to hurt you, he brought his makohedal down in a swift arc, expecting it to thock into the earth, but it merely bounced, chipping one of the blades. The children were not reassured. They hovered at the edge of the clearing, fearfully eyeing their surroundings. This witch couldn't have been too powerful, Kuwadl said. He pointed at the logs. Someone burned down her house. Sela let her eyes rest on him. It was the white robes. They sought her out and spilled her blood on the ground where you're sitting. When they were done, they set fire to it. White robes? Knights. The Knights of Salvation. The two men shared a glance. Salvation is a myth, Sela, Kuwadl said. A story to tell babies. It's not. We've seen it. What's left, at least. Of salvation? The city? She nodded. And while Kuwadl wanted to laugh, her face set so solemn and serious that he didn't have the heart. Kian must have read his doubt because he said, It's true. It's true. The Plix took... Kian, quiet, Sela said. They won't understand. She looked at Kuwadl. Is your leg rested? We should get moving again. It gets dark early this time of year, and we still have a long way to go. They walked on, the river's roar growing softer and softer, until the sounds of the jungle finally overtook it entirely. After the remains of the witch house, they came upon no more old Telek villages. No more adobes, no more steam baths, just hands and hands of untamed jungle. Kabata was a crazy old fool for living this far away, Zulak said. Kuwadl shook his head ruefully. I'm not so sure. Look at what happened to everybody who chose to stay close to the Scotte. It was close to evening when the terrain began to change. The trees thinned out, and the brush grew lower to the ground until both simply disappeared, and they found themselves walking through tall grasses and boggy marsh. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, they came upon a hand bridge. Kuwadl had never seen anything like it. It was long and sturdy, with even planks and ropes strung between the pilings, seven sets in all, evenly spaced, expertly measured. The wood was old and gray, stained green where it sank into the bog, but thick and stalwart. The bridge ended in a gatehouse made out of rough-hewn tree trunks, anchored into a tall battlement, also wood. Ka Bata might have been unpredictable in his politics, strange in his beliefs, but he was no fool when it came to the dangers of this world. The bridge was accessed by an elaborate entrance, an archway made from adobe that stretched back several yards to form a box. It was covered in a vast net of iron thorns, making it impossible to climb. Any enemy wishing to access the bridge would have to win the box or wade into the water. A wooden door blocked the way, the circular handles fashioned to look like snakes, of course. Anchored on the other side of the door were wide copper dishes in which the guards, for Kuwata could only imagine that the structure had been built with guards in mind, probably burned coal or oil, something to work as a beacon or a warning signal, or a weapon. They were dead and cold now, but the fires must have been quite impressive when properly tended. A silly contrivance, Kuwata said, meaning the entire structure. Impressive, but useless. Kabata built it, Sela told him. It keeps our enemies out. Kuwadl eyed the water. They can just swim across the bog. The girl regarded him thoughtfully. Then she turned to Kian. Show him. With what? Use your twists. But I only have a couple left. Just do it, Kian. He groaned and reached into a little pouch hanging from the belt of his tunic, taking out a twist of dried meat. Then he walked over to the bog's waterline, gnawing off a bite along the way. Watch, he said, and threw the rest in. Nothing happened for a moment. Then, the surface started to boil, and a swarm of fish erupted from the depths, fighting over the piece of meat. 
They snapped and gnashed their razor-sharp teeth, tearing each other to pieces. And when the meat was gone, they devoured their own dead and disappeared, leaving a red stain in the green water. Sayla smiled at Coatl. They could try to swim across the bog, she said. The door to the bridge opened with a whine, leading into the guard's room. Stashes of weapons lined the walls. Atalatls, maquahitl, spears, clubs, lances, bows and arrows, and, leaning by itself in the corner near the door, one of the Plix weapons, old and rusted and useless. Zulok found the spear. Then he opened up a chest that had been anchored to the wall. Dried fish and clay pots of water sat within. He picked up a pot and sniffed it. It was fresh. He put the pot back in the chest and watched the children as they walked across the bridge. I think you should stay here, he told Zulok. Why? Kowadl didn't answer him at first, didn't know how to explain his feelings. He trusted the children, he believed them, but... Zulok, don't you think that if the village was really overrun by Plicks, they would have attacked us by now? Zulok considered this. There are no Plicks, he said, or it's a trap. If it is, Kabata's dead, and if he's dead... Whoever goes in there is next. Then we'll take them on together. Kowadl held up his injured leg. If it's like that, then I'm done. But the monsters are still out there, in the swamp, replenishing their numbers. There must be some of our people left, some warriors somewhere. Someone needs to find them, rally them. Zulak clenched his jaw. It wasn't right. What if there aren't any left? What if we're it? I'd be leaving you to die. That's a risk I'm willing to take. Stay here. Let me do it. Maybe the children aren't lying. Zulok looked like he was about to argue. He didn't like the idea of leaving this man alone, not injured. Kuala was a great warrior, a celebrated general. He deserves his help, his respect. But, in the end, they barely knew each other. And though he was a general, he owed the man no allegiance. He'd already saved him twice. He grunted. Okay, he said. More food for me. Kuala leaned heavily on the bamboo staff as he crossed. His ankle ached. The tumor sagged, pulling on his bone, and though Zulak had done a good job killing it, pierced it straight through the heart and brain, its teeth remained fixed. It felt like his skeleton was being pulled out of his skin. He wished they could just cut it out, but the risk of infection was too great. He'd seen what happened to men who tried it on their own. Their legs rotted, they died in horrible pain. He distracted himself by taking note of his surroundings. The bridge was long and old, but sturdy and well-maintained. More symbols had been carved into the pilings. Variations of the Ouroboros, but some different ones too. A triple spiral, a circle divided into four quadrants, with a half moon resting on top. Three vertical lines, the one in the middle slightly longer than the two on the outside, joined together at the center by a horizontal spear. The children touched each one as they passed. What are those? he asked. Sayla said, A message. What does it say? She pointed at the Ouroboros, the snake that eats the sun. This is Kabata's. It means he returned. Returned? From where? Kawada looked up at the wall as they approached. It should have been crawling with plicks, their weapons ready to mow down any enemy. But he didn't see any. In fact, no guards were posted at the door, no soldiers walked the ramparts, and no fires burned, either in welcome or in mourning. All was still and silent. They were about twenty yards from the front gate when it opened with a crack and a whine. All three paused in the walkway, waiting. Then a figure in white stepped out, tall and lithe, with long, flowing blonde hair. Coatl flipped the club in his hand, readying himself. The children, however, did not seem concerned. More! Kian shouted and broke for the form. Sela followed, somewhat uncertain. Kian, wait! Coatl called after, but it was too late. He limped after them, his ankle throbbing with each step. 
How fearsome he must have looked. The figure disappeared back into the village before Kian even reached her, and he called out again. Noor, wait! Get back here, Kowadal yelled. Kian! The boy made it to the gate well before him and ducked inside, followed by Sela, who was yelling for him to stop. Kowadal, winded and limping, finally reached it, surprised at how much energy it took for him to run such a short distance. And so slow. The wound must have drained him more than he realized. But there was no time. He pulled the gate open so he could fit inside, took two steps, and stopped. An entire village was arrayed before him. Adobe huts with thatched roofs, a granary, an empty cattle pen, stilted rooms for food storage, but nothing else. Nobody else. It was entirely empty. Even the children had disappeared. Kian, he yelled. Sela! Nothing. The gate closed behind him, and he closed his eyes. They might take him, but it wouldn't be without a fight. He heard the footsteps behind him, felt the nervous energy. He spun, lashing out with the club, but his attackers were not as inexperienced as he thought, and as he spun, waiting for his club to connect, already swinging the staff to land the second blow, his head exploded with pain and his vision went momentarily black. He collapsed, halfway conscious. He dropped his club. He didn't know where the staff lay. He slapped at the dirt, hoping to land on either, but all he found was more dirt. Something stepped on his wrist, something cold and hard. His vision finally cleared. A man stood there. At least, Kowadl thought he was a man. He was covered in the strangest armor he'd ever seen, from the hard silver shoes he wore on his feet to the helmet covering his head. He picked the general's club up and swung it back and forth a few times, as if taking practice swings. Then he stopped and seemed to consider the intruder at his feet. Your leg is infected, he said. I can't have that in my village. The strength it took for Kowadl to smile up at him made him dizzy, but he did it anyways. He showed his blood-stained teeth and said, Death comes for everyone, I guess. The only thing you get in death is death. <laughs> Kowadl said, I'll see you there and I'll kill you again. The man in metal stopped swinging and paused. Then he leaned over so Kowadl could see his eyes glimmering from inside the helmet. General Kowadl, is that you? Kowadl snorted into the dirt. Then he started to laugh, even though it hurt his head. What's so funny? Kowadl barked out another laugh and gathered himself. Nothing, Kabata, nothing. I wish I could say I'm happy to see you, but... No. Kabata stood up straight and flipped the club in his hand. This won't make you happy either. When Kowadl woke, he was lying on a pallet in a room that looked exactly like the one from his childhood. The stone walls, the rectangular windows, the wooden door. Not everybody had a room to himself. But his father, a member of Sikakeyu's inner council, held a large amount of power. The Tlek did not measure wealth so much in material belongings. They measured it through power and influence. And the way to gain those was through military might, prowess on the battlefield. A large dwelling was more of a side benefit. Valuable, but not coveted. All it took was the will to do so. But Kuwadal had grown up wealthy. In victory after victory, his father and his uncle rose through the ranks until Sikakeyu granted them titles and seats on his council. And when his time came, Kowadl followed. He wondered if there was a garden on the other side of the door, just like his old house. Would there be a steam bath in the far end, too? But there were other items in the room, things he didn't recognize. An ornate table with a checkered stone top. White pots fashioned in the most magnificent shapes. A three-paneled screen with images of gods printed on his leather face. The pots, his chat, and quasa. The combination was unnerving, and it made his head swim. His head... Oh, his head. It throbbed and ached from Kabata's blow, and when he felt his temple, it was swollen and tender. He'd been hit like that before, and he knew how to handle that kind of pain. 
but he'd never been stung by a Taquani. Not many people did and lived, and the fear of the unknown, of what was going to happen to him next, increased his suffering. So that's why, when he sat up and looked at his leg, he was amazed to see the tumor was gone. The larva removed. A discolored flap of skin hung off his calf, the excess from the tumor, and now that he was more awake, he realized that all of his pain was localized, that it no longer radiated up his leg and through his bone, but that it only seemed to hover around the area of the wound. Obviously, Kabata had ordered the operation, but why? Why knock him out only to save his life? The door opened, and an old woman, the oldest woman he'd ever seen, hobbled in. She was dressed in a sleeveless tunic, her shoulders and chest branded with the triple spiral, the sign of her cabal. She was carrying a tray with a kettle of steaming water, a poultice, and an obsidian blade. She paused when she saw he was awake. Don't think about running, she said. Not on that leg, then disappeared behind the screen. Kabata's crone. The crone that removed the thing from his leg. It had to be. She shuffled out from behind the screen, and three neatly folded white claws were now stacked in the tray, as well as a little spool of black thread. She sat the tray down on the ground next to his legs, squatting with more ease than he thought possible from a thing so ancient. You're very lucky, she said, carefully arranging her instruments. Lucky, you say? Very lucky indeed. The little monster's teeth weren't fully mature. Very easy to take out. Very easy. I've seen them pierce the bone all the way through like a lance. Yes, you are lucky. She dipped the poultice in hot water. What's the blade for? Kawadal asked. Have you ever seen a Taquani wound heal? No, of course not. Of course not. Filthy creatures. Very filthy. Even the babies. She grabbed his leg with a gnarled hand, and he hissed and tried to remove it from her grasp, but it only made her clamp down harder. She picked up the blade and brought it to his leg. Kawadal said, Wait. That's what they all say, she said, and started cutting. He fell back onto his pallet, swallowing the cry that threatened to break loose. He was a warrior, a general. He would not show weakness before anyone, not his men, not a scottet, and certainly not a crone. She hummed as she cut, a simple tune, adding words every now and then to the melody. He focused on the lyrics, which were in that same strange language the children had used. <laughs> I can hear the oceans roar. Used to sing on the mountaintops. Has the ocean lost its way? When he finally had enough, he reached out and grabbed her hand. She stopped, watching him passively as he gulped the air. Then she waved the knife at him. If you think that hurts, wait until I stitch it. A moment, please. Just a moment. Was that a look of reproach on her face? Such a brave warrior. Such a brave warrior. A celebrated general now whining like a child? Men were so weak. A moment then, she said. But then I go back to work. The pain faded a little, and he said, What is that song? Oh, it's just an old rhyme. I've never heard it before. You wouldn't have. You've never visited Gabriel. The word was strange and difficult for him to pronounce. Who is Gabriel? Is pronounced Gabriel. Gabriel. He sounded it out, and she nodded. Close enough. Well, where is he? What? Gabriel, where is he? Gabriel's a place, not a person. Okay, but hush now, let me work. When she was done and the excess skin had been removed, the crone used the black thread to stitch the wound. Kuwadal wavered on the edge of consciousness, the pain of the surgery mitigated by the relief of having the monster out of his body. The old woman put the bowl, the knife, and bloody towels and everything else behind the screen and left for a while. Kuwadal slept, waking only when she returned, hauling two dirty blocks, one in each hand. She braced his leg with them, and he gasped. They were freezing. What is that? Ice for the swelling. Where did you get it? 
The crone stared at him, a flash of anger crossing her features. She opened her mouth to speak, but then the door flew open and into the room bounced a bear in white linen robes. Coatl had never seen such a hairy man. His head and face, his chest and arms, even his feet were covered in the thick, coarse stuff. Kabata? Could it be? Gone were his piercings, his feathers, all the symbols of a chief. He looked more like a plick than a person. General Kawato! Ha 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 ha! As I live and breathe! In the flesh! Ha! That was a pun! Oh, pardon me, madam. The crone glared at him. Kabata! He is very sick and very lucky to be alive, of course, of course. His crone stared at him until he lowered his eyes and tucked his chin into his chest. When she didn't say anything, he cleared his throat. <clears throat> Make sure he doesn't move that leg, she said, poking him in the chest with her tray. And no polk, Kabata. I wouldn't think of it, madam. I'm serious. As am I. She gave Kowadl a pointed look, then glared at Kabata again as she scooted out the door, her tray in front of her. Kabata smiled impishly and raised his eyebrows at Kowadl as she passed. When he was sure she was gone, he peered around the door, once, twice, just to make sure, then drew it closed. She's gone, he announced, and pulled a strange container from inside his tunic. Drink? Kowadl stared at him, baffled. No? More for me, then. He unscrewed the top and took a long drink. Ah, nectar of Mael. Kabata, what is this? Where are we? Why are you dressed like that, and why did you club me in the head? So many questions, General. But what else should I expect from the son of a councilman? Tell me, how did your father react when you decided not to follow in his footsteps? How did he re react? I'll wager he nearly exploded. He looked at Kowadl expectantly, and finally Kowadl said, He was not pleased. Kabata erupted in laughter. Ha 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 ha! I knew it! I knew it! He took another swig from the container. Your father. He was a great man, but he was wound tighter than a stingray's ass. Do stingrays have an ass? Who knows? He groaned as he squatted down on the ground. If I pinched a reed between my thumb and forefinger and tried to insert it into your father's ass, he'd probably cut off my arm. <laughs> Give me some of that, Coatl said, reaching for the container. Yes, yes, General, have some. Have yourself a nice long drink. He handed it over, and Coatl took a gulp. He had tasted alcohol before. He was a warrior, after all. His father had an agave garden and allowed his servants to make pulk to sell and trade at the market. But this, this was much stronger than any he'd ever tasted. It burned his throat and spread out into his belly. He choked and coughed, his eyes watering and his face turning red. Kabata laughed so hard that he couldn't breathe. When the general could speak, he said, What is that poison? Poison? Kabata said, snatching the container back. How dare you? That's my best batch of whiskey yet. He took another swig and tucked it back into his tunic. Just in time, too, for seconds later, the old crone came back into the room. Kabata looked over his shoulder as she disappeared behind the screen. He rocked on his heels. Forget something, madam? She didn't answer, re-emerging a few seconds later with her knife and bowls. She was about to leave when something caught her attention. She sniffed the air. Kabata, I said no polk in here. Madam. I swear on the hummingbird we have shared no polk. She peered around the room, seeking out any evidence of drinking. When she didn't see anything, she poked him in the shoulder. Don't touch anything back there. I wouldn't dream of it. Then she left for a second time. Kowadl, in the meantime, had leaned back on his pallet again. The whiskey. Is that what Kabata called it? Yes, whiskey. It did its work. Dulled the pain. His feet throbbed pleasantly. 
A warm glow suffused his body. I'll have another drink if you don't mind. Kabata smiled and reached into his tunic. Now you see, yes? Now you see. Yes, I see, Kawadal said, receiving the container. He took another swig and held it up. What's this thing called? Kabata suppressed a grin. A flask. I like it. It's strong. Where did you get it? In that suit you wore at the gate. What's it made out of? Kabata took the flask back. I don't know. They're just a few of the treasures we found in Gabriel. He leaned back against the wall, resting his head. There are strange things in that city. Old things. Ancient things. Fantastic devices. Marvels. But dangerous, too. Look at this. He rolled up his sleeve and showed Coatle a long, shiny slug that reached from his wrist to his shoulder. They almost killed me. Try to take my arm, they did. Would you like me to tell you about it? Thank you, everybody, for listening this week. Don't forget to check out LilithFilm.com, JamesKnoll.net forward slash BG, and you can support this show for as little as $1 on Patreon.com. It's Patreon.com forward slash Mad Tales. You guys rock. I'll see you next week. Thank you.